1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have Gary Pisano. Uh, he's a professor of business administration at Harvard Business School. He's a Harry Figgy professor of, again, business administration there. Currently serves as a senior associate dean for faculty development. Uh, he's been there since 1988, and uh, he's the author of multiple books. We're going to be talking about the newest one, Creative Construction, the DNA of, of Sustained Innovation. So, Gary, thank you for coming.
2: Great, Richard. Thanks for having me.
1: So what's the, uh, the new book about?
2: The, the main thesis of the book is that larger enterprises can be just as innovative as entrepreneurial startups. You know, there have been a long time, well, for a long time, there's been a, a, almost a mantra of the fact that, you know, big established enterprises are dinosaurs. They're slow and, you know, they're vulnerable to disruption and, you know, there's not much they can do about it. And that all the innovation is really the province of small entrepreneurial companies. And while I certainly am a big believer in entrepreneurial companies, I've been involved with many myself, um, uh, you know, just because small is beautiful uh, doesn't mean big has to be ugly. So the book is really how a larger enterprise can use its scale to its advantage for innovation. So how do we start to think about scale as a source of advantage for a large company, and what does an organization need to do to exploit that potential?
1: So I guess organizations obviously want to innovate. They need to innovate. But what are the ways they tend to go about it on their own right now without guidance?
2: So I think a couple of problems occur. I mean, the, the most common one that I see is that as companies, particularly companies who haven't innovated for a while, and they, they want to rekindle their, you know, maybe the innovative – vigor they had years ago that that led them to grow and they they launched these innovation initiatives and i think the first mistake is they don't actually think through and articulate what they mean by innovation and what kinds of innovation they really want to pursue and i talk about that as the innovation strategy And what tends to happen is if you don't have an innovation strategy and you're not really clear about the types of innovation you want to pursue and those you don't want to pursue, and you don't have a plan for how you're going to allocate attention and resources to those, then everybody kind of, you know, innovation is a great word. Everybody loves it and it's hard to argue against it. So everybody kind of gets on board, but they have their own concept of what innovation is and should be. So everybody 's kind of going off in different directions, doing you know in a well meaning way doing what they think is contributing to innovation, uh, but it's really hard to make progress because when everything's important, nothing's particularly important, and if nothing 's particularly important, nothing gets done so I think that 's probably one of the major efforts a uh, major problems that I see occurring. I think a second problem you see is that a kind of one size fits all approach so companies will say we want to be innovative let 's go out and adopt." the latest and greatest tool uh, that is out there for innovation so you know this, these days everybody's talking about design thinking let's let's we're going to do design thinking or open innovation and and those are just components those tools are just components within a broader system it's it's a lot more complicated than aping a best practice from somewhere it's it's really a, a constellation of tools you have to put together to to design a system that is focused on your particular strategy. So it's definitely not one size fits all. And I, and I think the third problem is is culture, that organizations often don't really take on the cultural problem in a way they need to.
1: So what are some things that you've seen successful organizations do when they want to innovate? What are some examples?
2: So good examples are, you know, when companies take on, and first of all, they do it, they, they, they tackle all three of these challenges. They tackle strategy, they tackle systems and they tackle culture. And throughout the book, I describe those examples. So, you know, a a company, the the book contains some well-known examples of companies you would have heard about like Apple and Google, et cetera, but it also contains companies maybe we we spend a little less time thinking about. So, I, you know, I think when you talk about innovation strategy, I think a great example of a company who historically has had just a a really well-defined innovation strategy is Corning. We don't normally think of Corning as you know, one of the great innovators, but it has been for consistently for, for many years. Um, and that's partly because they have a very well-defined strategy around how, how they allocate resources to different kinds of innovation they're going to pursue. And they actually make that really clear. If you go and look at their, their annual reports and how they communicate to shareholders, they make, that really, they make it really clear. And I, I think that's a good example of an innovation strategy in action Um, You know, another uh, throughout the book, I've described various examples in terms of 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 culture. And, you know, I think there that's a lot about what individual senior leaders do. And so a good example there would be at Johnson and Johnson, Paul Stoffels, who's currently the chief scientific officer there. But he when he was the head of the pharmaceutical division's research and development organization. So he's president of R&D of, of Janssen Pharmaceuticals. He, and he describes a story where they had a major failure, uh, a late stage failure of a drug. And you know, the board wanted to know who was at fault, which was code word for, you know, who do we fire? And he basically said, look, if you want to fire somebody, you know, fire me. I'm, I'm accountable. I'm the head of, I'm the president of R&D. And that kind of standing up for his organization played, I think, a really important role in changing the culture. And then he tells that story. and he, he basically gives the lesson, look, my philosophy is, you know, you take the risk, I take the blame, but you have to cascade that throughout the organization. And that's a great example of a leader taking that accountability and, and really changing uh, changing the culture.
1: So are you saying that innovation wants to happen and just needs the right environment, culturally,
2: structurally, et cetera, yeah. financially, just to happen? Yeah. I mean, it, it, well, you know, organizations, if you think about it, they actually were, if you think about the very concept of an organization, I mean, why we have these things called organizations, so large firm, you know, why we have companies, um, it's off, it's actually, they're not designed to innovate. They're actually designed to replicate. They're designed to uh, take their, whatever made them successful and, and do it and do it at scale and do it over and over again. And, and so in some sense, innovation is not a natural act for an organization. To, to perform, and so it's so it's not like innovation wants to happen. It, it's kind of like it has to be made to happen, and you have to nurture it, and you have to get the right people on board, and you have to get the right systems. It, it's very difficult. And a point I make in the book, and the, the philosophy of the book is: look, this is not. This is a lot of a lot of writings in management in general, and innovation in particular they remind me a little bit of diet books in the sense that they offer easy solutions and, you know, just, just do these three steps and you'll be fine. And, you know, innovation is easy and people who don't do it are just, you know, fools. And I, I look at it very differently. I think innovation is extraordinarily difficult. I think it's extraordinary, extraordinarily difficult to do it once or twice. And it's even more difficult to do it sustainably over time, just keep doing it and keep doing it. And, and so the book, Basically, I say this right at the outset. Look, there's nothing I can write in this book that's going to make this journey easy because it's not easy. If it were easy, it wouldn't be valuable. The reason Apple and Google and Amazon have market caps, you know, approaching a trillion dollars is because what they do, they know how to do things that other companies can't do. And I think what the book tries to do is it, it, the promise it makes is I, I can make this hard journey a little less difficult for you.
1: Well, once a company has decided, all right, we want to take the journey. What makes it hard?
2: Uh, so, uh, several things. I mean, for an and this is where being an established company there's a unique challenge. So, startup companies get to start with a blank slate. You know, they don't have existing markets, they don't have existing distribution, they don't have existing brand. And while they might not have resources, they have degrees of freedom. If you're in an established company, a larger company, you got that way because you had success doing something, and so. You have to, I think the first thing that's really hard is you're trying to do the new stuff, but you have to preserve the old stuff. So you can't just say oh, it's all we're getting out of the old business, unless it's a business that's in a total tailspin, um, which it often is not. It, then it's And that's what I call it, you know, the concept of creative construction. It's like you are you are renovating the house why you're living in it. I mean, that's the best analogy I can come up with, which is you're trying to make fundamental changes while still preserving and defending the core businesses, which, which you need to feed. I mean, those often generate the profits and the cash flow that allows you to do the new stuff. And just getting that balance right is, is, is quite delicate. And, you you, you know, and, and you need time horizons to do it. You need to be able to communicate with your shareholders and, and, and get the expectations online so I think that's that's the first thing that is that is really difficult. I think the second thing that's really difficult is you do get systems that get deeply embedded into the company which which may not which may work against that. So you go to allocate resources to a project and there'll be ways in which projects are evaluated and measured and and you know judged whether they're going to go through or not and those may be perfect for the routine innovation that supports your core business, but those, those same metrics and approaches and evaluation processes and ways of thinking may be terrible for the news. So you actually have to change those. And again, that's the system component. And I think, you know, look, let's face it, this third piece of culture, changing culture, you're changing people's behavior and culture is important to people in an organization, just like it's important in societies. It's like culture determines who's valuable, you know, determines what's valuable and therefore who's valuable. And a cultural change is, is actually involves a lot of conflict. It's not like the, you know, folks, not like everybody goes along. Um, there's winners and losers in cultural changes. And so sure. folks who actively try to stop you from changing the organization.
1: At what levels in an organization does innovation work and what levels doesn't it work? Should it be at all levels or that just a panacea like BS statement?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, I do think senior leadership matters a lot. I mean, I do think, and this is a book really targeted at more senior leaders because it's hard to think of organizations which are innovative where the senior leaders don't get it, don't think it's important. I mean, they're after all setting the context, they're setting the strategy, they're allocating the resources, they're, they're creating the context for the culture, certain cultures to thrive. So, I I do think it's necessary for senior leaders to be on board with the idea and to understand what's, what's required and the time horizons, you know, it it can't be this year's let's, let's have our, this year's innovation initiative. It's not this year. It it can take years to build these capabilities. So I do think it is the senior leaders, but you got to cascade it down. I mean, it's, you can have the best senior leaders in the world, but at the end of the day, it takes, a lot of folks being involved, you know, the folks who discover, you know, new insights about markets or technologies or business models, the, the people who create those innovations. I mean, they're throughout the organization. So, if you've got an organization at the top which is really on board with this and and excited and and capable, but you have the rest of the organization is not, I I, I don't think you're going to get very far. I do think you need really all levels involved because it just fundamentally changes. You know, innovative organizations are fundamentally different uh, than other types of organizations.
1: I heard that, you know, some companies would do like a skunk works. You know, they'll set up like a, an isolated area within the company. They'll fund it and they'll have people work on it and kind of be completely set off from the rest of the company. Is that good or bad in your experience?
2: It's, it's contingent. It's not. It's, it can be good. It can be bad. And here's what it depends on if it's a business that you're trying to incubate, that is really distant in some way from your existing businesses. And it's not going to require the resources of the, of the, I'll call it the mothership of the rest of the organization, then that's fine. So a good example of that is um, in the case, the, I wrote a case on this and the book talks about Honda setting up its project for developing and commercializing a light jet, uh, a, a, a private jet. And, Jets have very little in common to do with cars. I mean, there's almost no technology that spills over. There's some general philosophies about design and, and aesthetics, but I mean, it's in quality. But I mean, an airplane is not a car with wings. It's, it's a fundamentally different engineering task. And so Honda set that program up. It really, as a skunk works in the US, it was in Greensboro, North, it originated in Greensboro, North Carolina, or I think originally in Mississippi, and then they moved it to Greensboro. It was a small team, you know. it was geographically isolated from the rest of Honda, I mean, was it in Japan? They went to Greensboro, uh, they wanted to be in the US because the market for this type of product is largely in the US and a lot of the expertise they needed was in the US. And so they had good reasons to be in the US, but I did think it helped keep it, um, it, it allowed it to grow and thrive with some independence from the mothership, but it never needed to come back to the mothership. It never needed the other, the re, other than financial resources, it didn't need the distribution or manufacturing or supply chain um, of, of Honda, the rest of Honda, say the car part of Honda, but a counter, another example would be, you know, a company um, that set up and I, I, a case I, I, I worked on for a company where, it was a pharmaceutical company trying to get into cell therapy and developing um, new uh, developing drugs based on on what's called cell therapy. And it was very new technologically for the company. Very, very new. They had no expertise in it. And there was they weren't quite sure where it would fit in. And there were people who were skeptical and they set it up as a little skunkworks separately. They set up a different group. It was like its own firm. It had its own board of directors. And that was great at the beginning. But at the end of the day, it was still going to create a therapeutic, which needed to go through the same regulatory processes and, and and use the company's distribution and use some of its manufacturing expertise. And so the problems came later as they tried to reintegrate that. Suddenly you're going back to the mothership, uh, you know, years later, and you've been working on all this stuff and 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 you've made different decisions. And then some of the conflict that, you know, you put off now just arises in terms of people thinking, well, you know, that was a special case and these guys got all the resources and and, you know, I wouldn't have done it that way. And why'd you guys do it that way? And the new you know, Skunkworks now doesn't like those guys don't like being reintegrated. They're like, you guys are big and slow and you're bureaucratic, et cetera. And you get a fight. And so the Skunkworks, you know, you have to be careful because everybody talks about that as an approach. Um, but sometimes you're just kicking the can down the road in terms of the problem. You're gonna have a problem later. Sometimes it's better to try to solve that problem up front.
1: So how do you solve these conflicts or these potential conflicts
2: up front so, or earlier? Yeah, it's a great I mean, so part of it is you've got to sort of attack the, the if you if you think you've got a problem with innovativeness in your in your company, that is you think Folks are not willing to try new things, and they're not willing to take risks. Um, you have to address that head on. How do you address that? Uh, part of it, again, is at what's your strategy? Making clear about what's the balance between the risks we're taking and not. Make sure you've got the right people in those positions. So sometimes you have just the wrong people in those positions. They don't want to take risks because they're not they're not, they don't understand the new technologies. So yeah, sometimes you have to get people in the organization who understand the new ways of doing things rather than isolating them, put them right in the core organization. Uh, so sometimes it's painful. You have to replace people. You, you got to change the systems that enable you to do different kinds of innovation. If you have a, a one size fits, I've seen a lot of companies, they'll have a kind of a corporate innovation process that every project has to follow that's great if you do one type of innovation. But if you start to do multiple types of innovation, you need to have different processes for those. And so sometimes these conflicts occur just because you have a process that people think you're supposed to follow, which, which you should. But the, the problem is the new stuff requires a different process. And if you just had a different process, you could get people to buy into that. So I think those things are harder to do up front, But if you can do those, then I think you'll, things will be much smoother later.
1: Yeah, you know, have you had a situation where a company deliberately sets up, you know, uh, again a, a skunkworks or a mini version of itself, and says, "All right, go compete with us." You know, it's still all gonna the revenue is still all gonna go into the mothership essentially, but
2: yeah.
1: go do something completely different, and we'll compete against ourselves, but in effect, we'll have more of the market share by doing so.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are times. I mean, obviously, some companies do compete with different technologies. If you look at say, even in the car business, electric vehicles compete with gasoline, and and uh, you know I, I, that's a different that's a that's a corporate strategy decision whether you want to have divisions that compete against each other or not. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer for that. I guess the only wrong answer is not being clear about it. So if you're not clear about whether you allow that to happen or not, then it'll be a problem. I mean, look, car companies for years had divisions which competed against each other. Now, some of it was duplicative, but um, you know, but, but it's fine. It, it happened. I mean, certainly, you, you can get divisions competing against each other. Um, well, it
1: may be a source of innovation, but a different source that somehow sidesteps conflict because you're saying right in the beginning the whole nature of this thing is going to be conflict. Yeah. But through that, the company will be better off as a whole.
2: Yeah, you nailed it. I mean, it's, saying it up front goes a long way, right? Which is the idea of let's not duck it. Let's say we're doing something different here. And this is going to be that there is conflict where the old may compete with the new. And we're going to set that up. And, and that may force the old to improve. So there's, again, nothing wrong with that. As long as you're really clear up front, that's what you're going after. And you're going to allow that. What the problem becomes when you're not clear about that, and then somewhere along the way, people are saying, wait a minute, we're just competing with ourselves and that's not what we're supposed to do. And, we're, and it, so it gets very, you know, once you also set that up as competitive, then you have to make resource decisions that back that up. So you, you can't then expect the, the, new ent- the new part of this organization, say the Skunk Works, which is competing with the established part of the business, you, you know, then cross subsidies between them. That's just going to get people ticked off.
1: I guess it would be like a divorce. So you have to pay for your spouse's attorney. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's right. that's right.
1: <laughs> right. What do you like? What's the conclusion of the book? You know, if you haven't already stated it, is there, is there a new path forward that people haven't yet thought about or is it more of like, Hey, everyone wants to innovate. If you want to do it, here's a, a guidebook on how to do it the right way.
2: Well, I think it is a guidebook. I mean, I don't know if that, you know, there's probably many ways to do it, but I, I did write this book partly again. A lot of my clients would come to me and, you know, I was doing work on this stuff for years and I'd be running seminars for them uh, and they'd say, well, is there a book? We, what can we read before the seminar? Is there a book? And I, I, I liked lots of people's books on innovation. I just didn't have one that was like the soup to nuts guidebook for how to take you from the start to the end, you know, that it covered strategy systems and culture and did it in an integrated way. And And so I think that's the kind of conclusion that there's a couple of conclusions of the book or what maybe book it is a, it is a guidebook, but, but, but I do think it's, it's, you know, it is what I hope people get out of the book is as they read it, there'll be a different kind of leader that, uh, you know, I always aim to transform the way people think about problems and can behave and and practice. And I, I do think we do need more of these, what I call creative constructive leaders, the folks who can, who can really build transformative innovation inside Existing companies, because most companies are existing, we can't always just rely on cre- you know, the Schumpeterian notion of creative destruction. There's a lot of leverage in creative construction of large companies being able to do this, and they they can. There's a good there's a good history of doing it. So what I love, what I want people to do, is come away with some degree of optimism. I don't not not. I don't want them to downplay the challenge, but I want them to come away with some degree of optimism about that they can do it and and to get this thinking out of people that okay I'm in a large company we're big we can't innovate you know maybe we'll buy other companies but and we'll license it in but we're not the innovators that's for the other people they do the fun stuff and we just you know our job is to just you know plod along and market it and but that you can be that large companies can be really really innovative and I, and I want to just change people's thinking about that topic
1: what about uh it seems like I don't know, it's my outside perception, but some companies say, "I ah, will just buy a company that does
2: this." Yeah, they
1: want to expand
2: their capacity the to innovate. Does. Yeah,
1: how, right. does, how does that fit in here?
2: Well, look, I'm not against acquisitions. I think again, if it fits into a strategy, but it can't be your sole innovation strategy. In general, what happens? I mean, the record of that is really poor. So you get these companies that aren't very innovative, and they go out and they acquire a young innovative company, or a small innovative company, or even a large innovative company, and You know, they kill, they kind of kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. I mean, they, they, they destroy the culture and it shouldn't surprise us because these companies aren't innovative. They don't know how to manage innovation. So what leads us to believe that after they do the acquisition, they're going to do any better. And I'm not sure whether I use this analogy in the book. I've used it in my talks, but it's a little like somebody who's, you know, somebody who's a really bad parent and they say, well, okay, I'm a bad parent. Let me go out and adopt some kids. That's not going to make you a better parent, you're still going to be a bad parent, and so when these companies don't not think, don't know how to think systematically and strategically about innovation, they have you know they don't know how to foster innovative cultures and they they don't have innovative cultures and they're not in a, you know they won't take risks, et cetera. Then they go out and they acquire another company, that culture their their corporate culture eventually destroys. This thing they pay dearly for. So I think that's one of the problems with these. Well, we'll just acquire it. The other problem is if you're incompetent, it's really hard to know what to buy. So you look at companies who go out and do acquisitions who are not particularly innovative. They often don't buy the best player. They're not good shoppers. They don't have the experts inside to know what's good and what's not. And they they don't know how to leverage it. And so I think that's another major flaw in the, I will just buy it, you know, just let others do it. And then third, you know, because there's so few innovators, I mean, you see this in some markets. You look in pharmaceuticals, in in say the cancer area, because there's you know the innovation is so hard to do, the price of buying these new entities is astronomical. So it's not clear the shareholders are getting your shareholders are getting any benefit from this. The 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 acquired shareholders are getting rich, but it's not clear you're 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 adding any value for your shareholders because. You know, there's bidding wars. You'll have five companies. Um, you'll have five companies sometimes bidding for, for one biotech company. And, you know, they've got, they know how to negotiate. They'll get a very high price for it. So, yeah, you'll get the you'll get the deal, but you will have paid dearly. It's like a, a free agent in sports, right? You know, the one that everybody wants. So they're just going to pay through the roof for it.
1: Like you've mentioned, and I've heard mentioned many times, uh, companies have a really poor track record when it comes to buying other companies. And yeah. they tend to destroy them, Yep, unfortunately. It, your methods would that help a company buy a company successfully and not destroy it and integrate it and digest it properly? Perhaps? Yeah, I
2: think I think so. That's a great question. I I think so. I mean, I, first of all, again, if you've got the right strategy, innovation strategy, you've thought it through, then you'll know what to buy, where it fits. Because again, acquisitions have to be complementary to what you do. I don't think they can be a substitute. So you know, you'll know what to buy, why you're buying it, where it fits in. Is it a certain capability? I think it'll definitely help you on the system side. If you understand what the systems of innovation are, you won't have a, a system that will destroy their system. And third, certainly on culture. I mean, it, companies with innovative cultures can buy an innovative organization and preserve their culture. Companies with that lack that innovative culture, they're just going to squash and destroy the innovative culture of the company they acquired.
1: Yeah, it's weird. You wonder why a company would buy another company and then do that, but maybe they just can't help themselves, you know?
2: They can't help themselves. It starts. Great. It's a great question. You you go out and you pay all this money. And and as I mentioned before, you know, you you sometimes pay really high amounts for these companies. If they're, they're valuable, there's very few who are good. And you know, why would they do it? I mean, sometimes they're just acquiring a company because of it's an asset they're buying because of a product they want. They don't really care about preserving the organization, Um, but they're paying a lot. So sometimes it's intentional But sometimes they buy them, and they start out with a well-meaning, you know, we really want to preserve their culture. But then there's a creeping incrementalism of, well, you know, yeah, they're independent, but you know, they should really be on our accounting system because, after all, for you know, they they've got to be, you know, for compliance reasons, they have to be on our accounting system, okay. But nothing else. We're not going to do anything else. And then there's another step of saying, well, you know, actually, you know, they buy a lot of stuff from the same suppliers we do, and they don't get a very good deal. So they should be on our procurement system. And you start creeping, like each one of these can be justified. And then the next thing you know, it's all, you know, actually they got to be on our HR system. And, and suddenly just, you know, the kind of creeping bureaucratization gets there. It often doesn't happen instantly, but it'll happen over time. And, you know, it'll just really lose its verve, And they'll start bringing senior executives across from one division and they, don't, they, they lose their autonomy. And, you know, it, it tends to
1: happen. There's
2: many, many examples.
1: Okay, well, excellent. What's um, what's the path from here so people can get your book? I guess on Amazon and wherever books are sold, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. I hope so. Yeah, the uh, it is selling well. Uh, the publisher's already on the second printing, so uh, I know it was it was getting hard to get for for a while. I was teaching an exec program where we they wanted to order two hundred and they were scouring uh, scouring uh, the market for them. But I understand they're back in. Uh, they're they're back in supply, so uh, but the, we're expecting this lot to sell out as well pretty quickly. So I'm I'm delighted, but yeah, go, you can buy it from Amazon. Uh, that's certainly a great place to go look. There's some other sites that 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 carry it, um, and you uh, know, people will buy it and uh, let me know what they think of it.
1: Okay, excellent. Well, Gary, thanks for coming on the right. podcast. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you. My pleasure. Take care, Richard.